0: Welcome to In the Zone with Jeremy and Jose, and I am here and joined by a very special guest, a person I had the pleasure of talking with last year when I was doing a different podcast, and he wrote an amazing book called Beyond Broadway Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed football, and glad to have him back on talking with him again. Let's give it up and welcome him in the zone, Mr. Bob Letterer. Bob, how are you?
1: I'm fine, Jeremy. You're pretty special, too, you know.
0: Me? <laughs> well, I appreciate that. That means – I I think we're all special. We all are. But um, it, it, it's uh, – I am someone who's a fan of sports. I love the lessons it teaches. I love the history of sports. But I also like it when someone takes – don't get me wrong, you know, writing uh, the biography of Ted Williams or Joe DiMaggio. That's important and great. But when someone takes a unique turn and looks at the – either figures or the stories that we don't talk about a lot. And I love that you did this because with Super Bowl 3 we're always hearing about and I'm not saying he doesn't deserve attention, you know, with Joe Namath, but there's so much to that story of the AFL of the Jets of that team that no one seems to discuss and I'm glad that you wrote this book.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, I make the point to a lot of people these days, especially, you can take any championship team, and if you take the microscope off of the superstars of the team, there are fascinating stories that that have taken place amongst the 12th guy on the bench or the 53rd player on the roster. People who make contributions. I guess the thing that sticks out of my mind now that you bring that up is – I went to the 50th Jets reunion for the Super Bowl team, and mm-hmm. there was a guy there who was kind of very standoffish, not not unfriendly, but just he didn't seem to think he belonged there, and I and I could tell because of the interview I'd done with him months ago. Um, and and we talked, and I, and I said, "You look uncomfortable," and he just looked around, and he had this kind of sad look on his face. And he basically all but said to me, I don't think I belong here. And I <laughs> said, you're so wrong. And he looked at me, and his, he had his sons there. This guy's after 70 years old. And his sons came over, and I said, you may have only played on special teams that year, but you made tackles. And who's to say that if somebody else had been in your position instead of you, that they would have made the tackle that you made that prevented somebody from going for a touchdown.
0: Right. That's so fascinating that a lot of times when we think of what is the ultimate um, alpha, you know, mindset, the ultimate in confidence, we think of sports, but you see it time and time again, the story you just told shows it, they have imposter syndrome just like the rest of us do.
1: Yeah. No, it's very true. It's very true. Um, And so that really, that really hit me. Because, you know, he was literally the 40th, the 45th guy on the team. 45 players put on a Jets uniform last that year. And he played less than anybody else, but he played. And he was in, I don't know, eight or nine, 10 games, but only on special teams. And, you know, special teams is out there for eight, nine, ten times, depending on how many times you punt, how many yeah. touchdowns you score, how many touchdowns the other team scores. Um, and so, you know, my point was, who can say that you didn't do something that saved the game?
0: And and that's something because, you know, for the 68 Jets, now maybe you can argue when you rank greatest football teams ever and you don't want to put them high on the list, okay, but to me, when it comes to most important teams in football history, it's very hard to argue that they're near the top of the list of most important teams, the 68 Jets. So the fact that he feels that way and he's on such a historic team is really like that's, that's saying
1: something. I mean, he was going around, Deremy, asking his teammates to sign his book. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's how – I guess you could describe it as out of it, out of place, he felt – and I said to him, are you kidding? Those, those guys will, you know, they're your teammates. And, you know, I'll admit, I talked to some of the guys and they said, you know, that guy he hardly played and that sort of thing. But that didn't take, to me, anything away from the contributions he made. Every single person on that roster made a contribution. It, it, it wasn't Namath-like. It wasn't, you know, Jerry Philbin-like. Who was right. the best defensive player on that team? But he made a contribution, and if he hadn't, he wouldn't have been on the active roster, because even back then they were activating and deactivating guys and all the time and making decisions about who was who was and who was not going to play. So, and that team was very special, because um, although everybody looks at Super Bowl three as the Namath game. The fact of the matter is that if if all the guys who played that day hadn't played really an outstanding game, the Jets wouldn't have won. Right. Now, Baltimore had chances to win. Baltimore turned the ball over five times that day. Yeah. Four interceptions and a fumble. And one of the players on the team, Billy Joe who was injured, he had torn his his leg up in the uh, Heidi game. And who went on to become the second winningest coach in black football college history? Right. Said to me that creating turnovers like that, and he said, it's creating turnovers. It's not just having somebody throw the ball to you. No. Is not luck, it's preparation. Because somebody says, believe me, I've seen it in enough times, so and think about this if you're a football fan. How many times do you see a ball thrown right to a defensive player and he drops it? Right. Or a fumble occurs and it goes through the hands of somebody and, right. and gets recovered by the offensive team. So in fact, it's on, the back, it's on the back cover, you know, of the book. To those who think Super Bowl three was lucky, I've seen enough to understand that there's no luck in football. Luck is when opportunity meets preparation. Yeah. Beautifully said.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, beautifully said.
1: And the Jets team that year, again, wasn't just Namath, because the week after the Super Bowl, 10 other players joined Namath at the AFL All-Star game. Right. So yeah. they they had an outstanding team that year. Uh, now, one guy that, that really jumps out to me, they had a player named John Elliott. The Jets have had two players named John Elliott in their history, and they were both very good. But most people, when they hear John Elliott and the Jets, think of the left tackle, who was yeah. also known as Jumbo Elliott.
0: And they think him more with the Giants, too.
1: Yeah, exactly. He'd been with the Giants. He jumped to the Jets. Well, the John Elliott on the Super Bowl team was just about the best offensive tackle in the American Football League. But he had a short career. Um, and... Uh, so you know, this was his really coming out year that, that year in '68, '69. And again, it's just a guy that nobody even and he died young. he was 60 years old when he died. Yeah. So nobody even remembers John Elliott. They have no idea who the guy was, but I remembered him as a 16-year-old because he was a ferocious 245-pound pass rusher right 245 pounds and i talked to ed buddy who if he is not in the hall of fame he should be he was a 300 pound um offensive guard who played opposite john elliott and i said how good was john elliott and he laughed and he said son of a gun he said son of a bitch Uh, (laughs) "Son, son of a bitch let me tell you how good he was he said, I said, you had a six inch, and he did, height advantage, and you had a, almost a 60 pound weight advantage, and he said, I couldn't hit the guy. I said, what do you mean? He said, he was so quick that I would come across the line of scrimmage and try to hit him right in the numbers, and he was so quick, I couldn't really get a clean shot on him. I would glance off one of his shoulders. Wow. Look how quick he was, even with, with Buddy's size, and he said, "He was he was a, a a horrible person to have to play with. I'd much rather play against a guy my size, rather wow. than a guy who was super quick." And again, nobody, no Jets fan today, remembers John Elliott.
0: Now, let me ask you—I uh, guess a more of a personal question—because those formative years, you know, how old were you when Super Bowl three happened? Sixteen. So, at that's a golden era of, you know, a lot of times we look, you know, the best is like when we were in high school. So I look at that time, you have the 68 Jets, the 69 Mets, and then you have those Willis Reed, Walt Frazier, Nick teams. Now, did this Jet team – I know they probably all are special to you, but did this Jet team kind of stick out, hold a more special place
1: in your heart? They do, because as I explained in the book, I saw the whole game, um, and I – experienced the two weeks that led up to the game. So let me amplify on that a little bit. Um, I saw the whole game from start to finish. The Mets won the world series on a Thursday afternoon while I was still in high school. And I cut my last class of the day. The only time in my three years in high school, I just left the school and started walking towards the subway that I took to and from, uh, school every day, and I waited outside the subway station for the last out, until I went down into the in, into the subway. When the Knicks won the championship, they won it on a Friday night, and the NBA blacked out New York. Wow! It, it was on at midnight. I was not going to stay up till midnight, particularly when I had the radio on because I wasn't going to miss the game. And why was I going to stay up till midnight to watch what I just heard on the radio? And I. Remember, kind of shooting baskets in my backyard as Marv Albert, you know, was was describing the action. But Super Bowl three, from start to finish, the pregame show, and they didn't have six hours or ten hours of pregame; show. <laughs> it was an yeah. hour long, okay. Um, and for two weeks, everyone in the media had uh, basically said, "There's no way the Jets are going to win; they, they shouldn't even bother showing up." And a number of the Jet players, when I interviewed, said to me that made it even more delicious when we won because nobody not even people in New York expected us to win and a couple of the players asked me Bob, did you expect us to win and I went, no Yeah. I, after what Green Bay had done in the first two Super Bowls I was just praying the Jets were not going to get dominated and embarrassed
0: well, let me ask you because uh, we talked about it off off air a little bit, but it is The bizarre thing is not that the national focus, when we look back at history, focuses on superstars because a lot of times we do that. But when you have a local fan base, especially one who hasn't, doesn't have a long history of winning and from being a Philadelphia guy, the Eagles just won, but <laughs> I, I, we have a lot of losing in our history. And when we talk about those teams that have won championship, even in the past, Nationally, guys may not get recognition, but locally, that fan base, we can name everybody and talk about them. What surprises me is I've talked to many people who are of that generation, who are Jets fans and lifelong, and it seems like all you hear about, even when it comes to – you have a Hall of Fame coach in we Eubank. You don't – you hear – it's like it's Joe Namath did everything, and we skip right to the New York Stock exchange. And there's so many great players – who were a part of that and a part of that history. And that I don't even hear the jet fan base talk about. And that's kind of what baffles me.
1: I think if uh, we talk to 10 jet fans who are like 30 years old and you ask them who the coach was on the the Super Bowl team, they couldn't tell you. Yeah. Which I
0: know for us as like flyer fans, I know flyer fans can name Fred Shiro for the broad street bullies.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, sure. Sure. Um, but who were like 30 it years was, old. Well, but it was, you know, uh, and Shiro was us 40 years ago, and we're talking about something that happened now over 50, 50 years ago. Yeah, But um, I, I think part of it is that the Jets and the National Football League, but the Jets in particular, have done a rather uh, mediocre job of reminding the fans who was on the rest of the team. Uh, Matt Snell is a name people know and Emerson Boozer is a name people know and Larry Grantham a lot of Jet fans know because he played for 14 years with the Jets even in those early years but most of the other players uh, the fans don't really know or remember because every year or every time the Jets bring somebody out from that team it's always Namath and the Seven Dwarfs yeah Okay, even the NFL. You notice at Super Bowl time, Namath is always there. Yes, they they wrap their arms around him like he's the Messiah. And I really was hoping it didn't happen. But I was really hoping when they mentioned and honored the Jets team at the Super Bowl uh, in January of two thousand nineteen that they were going to trot out the whole team. They didn't. They trotted out Namath. And, you know, I i mean, I, w- I wasn't cognizant enough of the 60 Eagles, but I've mm-hmm. gone back and I've looked to watch Van Brocklin play. And I remember Tommy McDonald, you know, yes. uh, in the early 60s, because I would pay attention to the Giants, and they played the Eagles twice every year. And Bignarik was... <laughs> I me mean, number 1 for what he'd done to Frank Gifford. So yeah. I'm aware of that too. Um but you know it's usually it's a handful of the of the big names that that get the attention and my only real uh frustration is that it's it's just Nameth and it's not it shouldn't be and history doesn't show that.
0: Yeah, uh, I think it's um and correct me if you disagree with me but I think it's I don't, I don't hope blasphemous might be too strong a word, but that Jeff fans seem to know Mark Gastineau more than they know Jerry Philbin
1: and ja- and Joe Clucko and, and Clucko's is a great player, right? But he's, more, I- but he's more of the era that today's season ticket holders have. So when I was pushing Winston Hill for the hall of fame and Larry Grantham for the hall of fame on social media, the last two, three years, Every time I did, some guy would would throw up Joe Klecko's name. And Joe Klecko deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, too. Right. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, I mean, for all these years, Winston Hill has not been in the Hall of Fame, wasn't even on the selection list. And as the book points out, it's because he told Namath and other players that he did not want to be nominated. And it came down to the fact that Winston Hill grew up in a very, very religious family in Texas and his dad preached to him. Don't call attention to yourself. If, if you're good enough at something, other people will make that, you know, connection for you. So, so Winston Hill told Namath, don't nominate me. Don't bring me up. Cause Namath could have brought him up anytime he wanted. And they probably would have paid attention. And only now, when the NFL was you know, celebrating its 100th anniversary and expanded the number of players that they would induct, did Winston Hill get his just due?
0: And I think, because I, I said, Mark, because Joe Klecko, I think, should be in the Hall of Fame as Jerry Philbin and as Winston Hill should have been a long time ago. But I feel like Jet Franchise will do better pumping Mark Gastineau than these guys. And I guess that's where it kind of frustrates me
1: you and know, and Mark Esteno is, is never getting into the Hall of Fame. No, no. It's like it's like, and you know, it's you know, it's drugs. So it's like A Rod. You know, somebody wrote in New York a couple of weeks ago, because A Rod was trying to buy the Mets. Uh, is that you know how could the how could Major League Baseball admit uh, A Rod as the owner of the Mets when he would never even be allowed to be voted into the Hall of Fame?
0: Exactly. And that's, that's the hypocrisy in a lot of it. And um, I, I wanted to ask you because Joe Namath, to me, is one, one of the more, when you talk about his legacy, he's one of the more interesting guys because I'm someone who definitely believes in our stats. Is there an importance to them? Yes. But are they misleading? Absolutely. And I know he's the first quarterback to throw 4,000 yards in a season, a lot of interceptions. And I know people will look at his uh, completion percentage, and the game was different. It wasn't these little, like, screen passes and five-yard passes in today's game where you're going to have a high completion. if you threw it, you threw you threw it deep. But he, I see a lot of the inconsistencies in his game and a lot of the other things. I know he was an iconic, a cultural icon. But when you hear of great players who are Hall of Famers, I've will never i never heard anyone say Joe Namath is – we talk about greatest quarterbacks. No one ever says his name. And, I, and even in Super Bowl three, you know, we've talked about it, and it's how great Winston Hill played, that defense played, uh, how Matt Snell and, and Emerson Boozer. Joe Namath played a very mediocre game.
1: Well, I wouldn't go that far. He played a very solid game. He, he followed the game plan. And the game But don't blow
0: it for us. <laughs>
1: well, exactly. Well, exactly for more or less, because the week before, and I spell this out in the book as well, uh, a number of opposition players, not on the Colts, but in the NFL, said, it looked at the Jets and said they have no chance because they're never going to be able to throw deep on the Colts' deep zone. And one guy prophetically wrote, it, 180 degrees wrong, he said, You know what you can do against the Colts? you can dink them and dunk them and throw a lot of six and eight yard passes. And what is that going to get you? Well, you know what? It got the jets a lot because the Colts were looking for the bomb. They were looking for Namath to be home run happy. And that wasn't the game plan. And the game plan was let's throw long a couple of times to keep them honest. And to the jets credit, um, no, nobody in the entire NFL had gotten behind the Colts' deep zone the entire year, uh, and Don Maynard got behind it in the first quarter. And he was—he had a semi-limp. He had had an injury uh, in uh, the NFL in the AFC's uh, uh, closing stages of their regular season, and it, it reoccurred in training camp in, in training. But he got behind the deep zone. And it happens, I don't know, six minutes into the game, and the Colts completely freaked out and shifted their defense towards Maynard and even a deeper zone. And that is when Namath and George Sauer started hitting relatively short passes and making Lenny Lyles, who frankly also wasn't healthy, he had the flu that week, make mm-hmm. him, make him look very bad. So, um it, 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 was a, it was a fascinating game plan that they put together, very unlike any other game they had played the entire year. Um, and actually, it was maybe only one other game like that in Namath's history with the Jets that they played like that. And they had a game against the Patriots a couple of years later, and uh, they were so effective running the ball in the first and second quarter. But Namath, I think he only threw 12 passes the whole game. They just kept handing off, and I think they ran for 350 yards that game. So, uh, but but that's what made Super Bowl three so different and so uh, so interesting. But do you think
0: do you think he, for me, is my like, I think of MVPs of that game. I look at Matt Snell. I'll take George Sauer over him. I know Lyman don't get it, but Winston Hill was dominant. You know Jerry Philbin. That to me was total. In my opinion, you may disagree. Total name recognition that he gets Super Bowl MVP.
1: Well, the quarterback always gets it, <laughs> unless unless the quarterback is really there to not make a mistake and and not cause any turnovers. Now that was not Namath's role. He threw the ball really well. He made really two bad passes that almost got intercepted, but rest of the time he was really on the mark. Um, And I could understand that he got the MVP, but I couldn't understand why nobody else at the time pointed out what you just did. Uh, And that's what made it fascinating to me to go read the newspaper the next day after the game about what they wrote. And Paul Zimmerman, who was the best football writer in New York at the time, wrote a column about how Randy Rasmussen, who was a rookie had taken on Billy Ray Smith and basically, just you know, treated him like like he was uh, his own the entire game, and uh, and Rasmussen had told me that Billy Ray Smith growing up was his hero. Wow! And, and so we talked about how he prepared for the game because he was freaking out about Billy Ray, and he said once the game started and I and I started hitting people. He was just like everybody else, and he and he didn't even want to say how much he had dominated him, but he had completely overwhelmed him the entire game.
0: I well, let me ask you, what do you because it's something that it's fifty years later, and as much as it, someone who loves history, not just sports, and a lot of times things are revisionist, and people kind of forget after a while about certain things. In society, Joe Namath is still a name, and he's still he's still in commercial. He's an iconic figure, and I think if people who last that long in sports, they they are the giants of their sport. And would you do you see Joe Namath as that?
1: I don't know. I guess maybe the best question, the best way to answer it is to say people ask me. In fact, I think you asked me last year. Would Namath have gone to the Hall of Fame if they didn't win Super Bowl three? And the answer is. No. Yeah, but at the same time, Jim Plunkett won two Super Bowls. He's not Mm -hmm. Hall of Fame. Uh, You know, there there have been quarterbacks, you know, who won Super Bowls that are never going to get into the Hall of Fame. I, you know, I, I I look at Namath both from a professional standpoint and a personal one, and I told you recently about my my run-ins, if that's the correct word with Namath, as a person I really have no use for the guy, mm-hmm. but he had amazing talent. And he, he, in my opinion, let it go to waste. Because the only year, according to his teammates, that he really applied himself and really just played football was the year the Jets won the Super Bowl. Right. And by that I mean he wasn't running out that at night, that 68-69 season, at least once it got started, he wasn't running out with starlets every night. He was home like everybody else, studying film, and that makes a huge difference. When you, that's one of the big things I learned is really how studying the film makes a huge difference to preparation. When you Absolutely. see guys, when you see guys now in in any game who are out of position more than once in a game because they haven't done the preparation. Either that, or frankly, I've been told they're dumb. But I don't think yeah. that most guys who play pro football or any other professional sport are necessarily dumb. It's a matter of did you really do your homework?
0: I agree. I agree. But I remember the I always think, think about the quote that uh, there's a connection, Buddy Ryan an assistant coach on Super Bowl three team, and then Buddy Ryan, the head coach later on in the 80s for my Philadelphia Eagles, and he always said, I don't, he's like, I don't want any cowards or dumb guys. He's like, the dumb guy will get you in trouble, and the coward will get you in trouble, so. yeah. And Buddy also,
1: and Buddy when he was on the Eagles, when he was with Houston, when he was with the Bears, where he really made his name, and even the Vikings, where he was just before the Bears, right. he always talked to the players about the Jet team really really interesting to learn that
0: yeah i i i guess for me being you know a little brother syndrome you know always listening to wfan and gone to plenty of games in yankee stadium and shea and been to the garden it's surprising that any any um winner in new york is overlooked But I look at these – a lot of these guys on this team, and they are – including, you know, I – Jose and I did a show on Andy Reid after he won the Super Bowl. And at the end of it, we uh, broke down our, like, tiers of, like, our – you know, great coaches. And I had said to Jose, I I put Weeb Eubank right on the top of tier two. I I wouldn't put him in the top ten of all time, but I'm like, Weeb Eubank coached and won probably the two most important games in football history. And I feel like he's he's overlooked as well.
1: And well it, he, it, You know, again, in the book, Carol Rosenblum, who was the owner of Baltimore, who had fired Weeb Eubank as the coach of the Colts, and recommended him to the Jets to take over, said in the uh, early 70s, after Weeb had finally retired, that everyone talked about uh Lombardi and everybody talked about Landry and everybody talked about Paul Brown, one mm-hmm. or two other guys, and he said, but you know, Weeb gets overlooked because look at what he did twice with teams that had nothing to start with. When yeah. he went to, when he went to Baltimore in 1953, he had been with Cleveland for a couple of years under Paul Brown he had a roster of guys that nobody ever heard of. Now it happened uh, that a handful of them had a pretty good talent and we've coached them, you know, to bring it out of them. When he went to the jets, he had nothing. He not only didn't have any veteran players that he could really count on as a warrior, there were a couple of Titans like Grantham, like Don Maynard, Mm -hmm. uh, like Billy Baird and Paul, uh, Paul Rochester and Curly Johnson who eventually ended up on the Super Bowl team as well. But the Jets, as they were known as the Titans the year before, Titans had had a pretty good draft. Mm-hmm. And They signed nobody because they had no money to sign anybody. So imagine starting a new season, you don't have any fresh college talent. And the assistant coach for the Jets um, said at one point, we had three teams that year. We had the team on the field. We had a team of guys coming in each week to try to make the roster and another team of guys leaving because we had cut them. That, you know, uh, basically a bunch, of, a bunch of nomads and ex Canadian football league players and ex NFL players.
0: It's amazing. Uh, yeah. I name it. Cause you're right. There's quarterbacks from a Jim McMahon, and a Plunkett um, who have won, Super Bowls and you know I never would call definitely not Jim McMahon a Hall of Famer and I wouldn't call Jim Plunkett a Hall of Famer even though I, I love his story but I don't know if too many Hall of Famers who I am like yeah you're if you don't win that game I don't think you're in the Hall of Fame it's really one oh,
1: you're, game you're right but you know in I think when people vote for the Hall of Fame you know in some sports I don't think they do it in baseball so much but you know, your personality, your cultural uh, situation. Joe Namath was the most prominent player in in football during the 60s, and he only played from 65 to 69. Mm-hmm. There were other guys, I mean, great player. I mean, Sonny Jerkinson, great quarterback. Y.A. Tittle was with the Giants, and Unitas was, you know, with the Colts. Bart starring Green Bay. Roman Gabriel, I mean, I John Brody, I remember all those guys as a kid, okay? But Namath, week in and week out, was somebody that everybody was really drawn towards. And Namath was the first player in football history to draw female fans into the ballpark.
0: Would you say even more than like Frank Gifford? Back in the oh years. yeah, I
1: mean Frank Gifford was a good-looking guy from USC and a and a, and a good, darn good player. But people didn't go to the giant game. Women didn't go to the giant games to see Frank. Gifford. Okay, we, young yeah, women. Went, young women went to the Jet game, you know, to basically, <laughs> you know, almost do the Tom Jones thing of throwing their, you know, their undies at him. Yeah, tension. No, he was hey, Joe he, Willie. He was yeah, exactly. He was just, and he played it to the hilt. You know, because later on he had the fur coat and all that kind of thing. And the Jets' principal owner, Sonny Werblin, made it a point to make Namath into a celebrity. In addition to, you know, he couldn't do anything about his football ability because Sonny Werblin didn't know, you know, anything about football. He let Eubank take care of that. But he knew how to create stars. Let me. so let me just say real quickly about Sonny Werblin. Sonny Werblin was part of the syndicate that bought the Jets out of bankruptcy in 1963, and before that, he had been uh, basically uh, Mr. Showbiz in the sense that he was the manager of some of the biggest stars on Broadway and Hollywood. I mean, he had he was the manager uh, of Elizabeth Taylor. He was the manager of Johnny Carson. He was the manager of uh, just about every star in Hollywood and so many on Broadway. He created television programming for ABC, NBC, and CBS. And and he would sell programs to each of them opposite each other. So he'd go to CBS and sell them on a Western starring one of his stars in the lead role. And after he'd made that transaction, he went over to NBC, said, you know, CBS is going to have a Western on at nine o'clock on Monday night. You ought to have one, too. And he would sell them a Western with one of his stars. And then he'd go to ABC and he'd do the same thing. He was doing the programming for the 3 major networks. those, So he had connections galore. And he always told everybody that I need a quarterback, but I need someone I can mold into a celebrity. So he had Namath going out with starlets every night in Namath's early years. Um, and he made it known in the newspapers what kind of a bachelor pad, you know, Joe had with mirrors above his bed. Yeah. Every, and and there's special carpeting and whatever. And yeah. so the media always knew where Joe was every night and they were taking pictures. And that's because the Jets sucked. And <laughs> Wimbledon had to find a way for the Jets to... Compete in the media against the Giants, who were a very, very good football team in those years.
0: So, do you, I, I'm glad you because that's a, honestly a perfect segue because I wanted to ask you about Sonny Werblin because I think in today's as we've what I've noticed in my opinion, the role of people in the front office, whether it's GMs and owners, is starting to get more recognized by the av- by the common fan. Talking about who is a good GM, good owners, all that. And I look at Sonny Werblin, does he not get enough credit? Because you see, like, he's before a George Steinbrenner with the Yankees, a Jerry Jones, and and really molding and really bringing to light that, hey, it's sport, but it's entertainment, and really making that popular. Like, does he not get enough credit?
1: You, you, you nailed it right there when you said it's also entertainment, because that was his idea when the Jets moved into Shea Stadium in 1964 he emphasized that, that we're here to entertain people as well as give them a good football game. And so he brought a professional band into Bay Stadium and had them up where the left field bleachers are. And he had cheerleaders. The AFL had cheerleaders in general. The Jets hired cheerleaders from St. John's University. Uh, So it was not a very sexy group uh, and had them. And he had a little jet plane that would go back and forth along the sideline every time the Jets scored a touchdown. Um, people, people out there do think here and there that Sonny should be in the Hall of Fame, and I think he should be, because he forced the merger. Up until that time, there was, there was no interest by the NFL. They'd been approached by the AFL a couple of times to sit down and talk. But the mere signing of Namath and what happened in the next year Uh, forced the National Football League to seek a merger. And as we both know, uh, Al Davis and Sonny Werblin were opposed to a merger when it actually happened in in 1966 because it, it required AFL teams to pay an indemnity in the New York market where the Jets were invading and San Francisco where Oakland was invading the 49ers territory. And Davis and Werblin told the other owners if you wait a year, they'll come to us for a merger and they'll pay us to merge with them. And I have a feeling the way Sonny was willing to spend money and the way Al Davis was getting the other owners in the league who had a lot of money, like Houston and and Kansas City, that it would have forced a merger on the AFL's terms.
0: Mm. Something you had said earlier, and I I wanted to ask you this because Over the past few years, I've thought about it. Is in Super Bowls one and two, Green Bay you know beats Kansas City and they beat Oakland. But if you look at the history of the AFL, you know we we know what happens in Super Bowls three with the Jets, Super Bowl four the Chiefs beating the Vikings. Even but you hear about the uh, the LA Chargers wanting to play the Bears in sixty three. A lot of people feel like the Chargers. Would have beaten the Bears if they would have played head to head. I would,
1: I would, I would doubt it, but but there's a there's a lot of hoopla about that.
0: And so it's, I want to see your opinion as a guy who loves the AFL. Do you really do you really see a big gap outside of Lombardi's Packers? We know that's the team of the '60s. A big gap between the AFL and the NFL in those 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 ten years
1: after '65, '66, when the AFL really started to to uh, recruit college guys, really good players, a 65 team uh, across the AFL was really good. You know, I said to Matt Snell, who came to the Jets in 64, uh, you know, your rookie year was far and away your best year uh, as a professional with the Jets. And he laughed and said, you know why? And I said, no, he said, look at the talent that I was playing against in 64 and look at how much better it got in the, in the following years.
2: Yeah.
1: In fact, um, I, is one of the things I could not do for the book that I really wanted to. But I make reference in the book that Werblin really tried hard to sign Dick Butkus. Mm. Butkus came out of Illinois the same year that Namath came out of Alabama. And uh, Werblin gave but, but, Butkus an offer that was a blank sheet. and said, you fill in the check number and I'll pay it. And mm-hmm. Butkus had already made a, uh, an oral commitment to George Hallis and the Bears, or he said he would very seriously consider it. And, and he told Mike Tolliver, who was Namath's backup and who had played with him in Illinois, in years after their, their retirement, I should have taken the Jets offer. Well, wow. what, what I could never get in the book that I tried to was I think that if Dick Butkus had signed with the Jets, that it would have forced the rest of the American Football League to put more of an emphasis on defense. Because imagine this wild man you know, tearing up the AFL the way he did the NFL. Uh, mm-hmm. and and the other teams would have had to respond in kind. Now Kansas City always had great talent. They might have had more talent than any team in football in in the mid to late 60s. I
0: was going I was going to get to that later with you definitely. Yeah, um,
1: but but again, imagine a rookie linebacker Butkus and a rookie quarterback Namath on the same team. And it wasn't right. as if the Jets didn't need more attention, but imagine the right. attention week in and week out that Dick Dick Butkus Playing middle linebacker for the New York Jets would have had
0: given. Well, that's the- what I was going to ask you because him going to the NFL with the Bears now, we, he would have obviously because he never had he never went to the playoffs with the Bears, never went to a playoff game, so he obviously would have done that with the Jets in the AFL. But do you think because you know the NFL, the Bears are a Titan franchise of the league? He had NFL films has been created at that point and, you know, with the Sables and John Facinda to really emphasize the mystique of Buckus, is he, and we talked about how a lot of these great players on the Jets outside of Namath aren't recognized. Is Buckus, is the lore of Buckus as great if he goes to the AFL?
1: Oh yeah. Oh, I, uh, as I found out that the, that the Jets had made that, you know, ridiculous offer, not ridiculous, but one great offer. Uh, (laughs) Um, I had an associate here who knew nothing about football in my office. And he said, what's this Butkus thing all about? And I said, go on YouTube. And he did. And just put Dick Butkus in action. And he watched it for about two minutes. And he's laughing his head off as Butkus is tearing people apart. And I said, imagine that. You know, it just didn't have much of a defense until 68. Imagine if this guy had been there uh a couple of years earlier i'm telling you the jets would have put more emphasis on trying to build guys around him uh, i've talked to the jet linebackers i talked to grantham and i said imagine if butkus had been your middle linebacker in cell of al atkinson which nobody's ever heard of al atkinson He was a great linebacker but he wasn't dick butkus and larry said to me i don't think walt michaels who was the defensive coordinator you know, uh, would have done anything differently, and I said, "Well, maybe not." But Butkus was right. You know, even Atkinson. Atkinson played with him in the college all-star game, and Atkinson told me he was a man among boys. Not not only as a player, but his size. He was so much bigger, and so I mean, this was a guy who was like six foot three and two hundred and fifty-five pounds. When linebackers generally were like six one, six two, and maybe two twenty. Right. So. No, he,
0: he he is he is hulking. I mean, I'll give this. He's part of talk about you. Uh, you know, individual draft classes by a team. I mean, having Sayers and Buck is, it's it's pretty hard to top that. I mean, the '74 Steelers have a great draft class, but to get a Sayers and a Buck is, those are two transcendent talents. One on yeah. offense, one on defense.
1: You know, the Jets tried to get Sayers too. Yeah. <laughs> But Kansas City wouldn't allow his uh, negotiating rights to go to the Jets. But I, this was drafted by, De- by Denver. And Denver yeah. was willing to trade his rights to the Jets if the Jets signed him.
0: But I, I also – because you, you're hitting on so many things. I love, I love talking with you always. It's, it's – what I said about the 68 Jets uh, and not being – I can understand them not being called one of the great teams ever is what baffles me that I look at the 69 Chiefs and the Chiefs of that era because the fact that no one talks about, I, I really feel if if Ed Sable doesn't approach Hank Stram for a Super Bowl and 65-toss power trap isn't in lore, then we really don't talk about those Chief teams. And that is, to me, one of the all-time great teams in football history. And I feel like, is that a knock? Is that to to me like another way the nfl is kind of burying the afl in your opinion
1: i'm, I'm not sure how many players on that kansas city team and it was more than a one-year wonder too how Absolutely. many players on that kansas city team are in the hall of fame but i know there are five six or seven of them like otis taylor who is not in the hall of fame and that's mm-hmm. that's ridiculous
0: that's i think so
1: ridiculous and and yet i'll turn it back to the jets for a second Weeby Bank was such a good coach and he had such good assistant coaches that the Jets could play Kansas city, even Steven with a roster that was nowhere, you know, as talented as, as the chiefs were.
0: Well, so many, um, I look at it, the fact that no one talks about, you know, Willie Lanier, the first black middle linebacker. And to me, he should, and this is my opinion, Bob. He's on a par when we talk about Ray Lewis and all these other great middle linebackers. You hear Jack Lambert, Willie Lanier's right up there. Like he. Well, he was he, playing,
1: I, and he was playing with Bobby Bell, who's in the Hall of Fame, and yeah, Curly Culp, who I think they just put into the Hall of Fame. And it took a, way And, to and, and, long B, and long. Buck Buchanan. Yeah. And yeah. their left, their left uh, defensive end was Aaron Brown. Probably nobody here even knows who Aaron Brown was. He was a great football player. And they had a defense – you know, they had an all-star at every position on defense. And Ernie Ladd was on the championship on, They weren't team. far behind on offense either.
0: Yeah, Ernie Ladd wasn't on the championship team, but they no, had he big was, Ernie he was Ladd. There,
1: he was there the year before.
0: Yeah, they had, but Ernie Ladd's a part of that era of Kansas City. Um, but I feel like it's just, you know, just another way that this league is still – Overlooked, you know, and yeah, not. Should, you
1: mentioned Ernie Ladd. We should explain to those who don't know Ernie Ladd. Uh, aside from being a wrestler, uh, was <laughs> a great wrestler, a good, great wrestler. Yeah, he uh, he was like uh, six foot nine and three hundred something pounds, which a lot of guys are <laughs> today, but in those years, he was a monster. Jo- uh, John Schmidt, who was the Jets center, and who was pressed into emergency. Service as a as a center for the Jets in '65, I think it was or '66, told me the first time he uh, first game in the first he, they play San Diego and Ernie Ladd is opposite him as he comes out of the huddle, and his coach at Hofstra, where uh, John had played, had always said, just hit a guy as hard as you can, show him that you're for real. And so the quarterback, you know, a Namath, I guess it was, called a, called a play, a running play. And Schmidt said, I just ran as hard as I could. And I bounced off him and got knocked to the ground. <laughs> I mean, Ernie Ladd was a monster. But he was, I, also, he was also one of those guys who just didn't play on every down. Right. He didn't, he didn't, I, he didn't use his talent to its fullest.
0: I, I, I always kind of – we talked a little bit, you know, about <laughs> – whether it's writing a book or maybe even in today doing a a documentary or a podcast documentary about interesting people who don't get talked about enough. Ernie Ladd's at the top of my list. There's a few other people too, but Ernie Ladd is such an interesting.
1: Well, you know, big daddy Lipscomb was like that too.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, He he was very similar
1: size. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Eugene Lipscomb, uh, play for Steelers and the, and the Colts. Yeah. Um, yeah i don't I don't know yeah if he was quite as he might be a couple inches shorter than lad but just as big yeah just as big and he died tragically and and you know um for anyone who is listening if you type in eugene big daddy lipscomb there's a great i think william knack wrote it but it was a sports Illustrated article about 20 years ago that's really talks about him and and the 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 dichotomy, and he was a transcendent defensive lineman, What you see a lot today.
1: He he died under somewhat mysterious circumstances. Absolutely. Some people talked about drugs and such, but I had a guy call me a couple of years ago, and he said he wanted to write a book about Big Daddy because he said that he had been branded as a drug user, and there was a lot of evidence that he didn't touch anything in the way
0: of drugs. Well, he was fearful of needles, legendary, and then he, he died from a heroin, and that's what you read like Lenny Moore and a lot of people saying like he was definitely afraid of needles and then something's placed there that he injected heroin and it doesn't add up. So um, yeah. it, it really was sad and tragic. You know, he's a very interesting figure as well.
1: You know, in, in talking about the book, um, you know, the other reason why that Jets team is so special is what, what they caused to happen, forced to happen after the game. The NFL didn't believe what had happened. It took another year until Kansas City manhandled Minnesota Super Bowl before the NFL really understood that there was, you know, real competition coming from the other league. But after Super Bowl three, the decision had been made that decisions had to be made about the merger and what was going to happen and who was going to go where. And Pete Rozelle, two days before Super Bowl three, had basically announced his plan was to move the AFL teams into the National Football League. And by that, I mean, move the Jets into the Giants division and the Oilers into the Dallas division uh, and the uh, the Raiders into the 49ers division. And after the Super Bowl, the AFL owners got their backs up and and told the NFL owners, no, we want to stay together as a structure. Mm -hmm. And so the American Football Conference, the one that we have today, was created. And because of balance purposes for scheduling, they needed to move three teams, this is Al Davis's idea, from the NFL to the to AFC. The and so they had to, you know, they had to ante up money to get the teams to make the move. Well, the first team that was willing to make the move was Baltimore because the owner of the Colts saw dollar signs in in playing Namath and the Jets twice a year. And then uh, Cleveland decided that they would go to the AFC because The Cincinnati Bengals, who had been started and were now being run by the former Browns owner Paul Brown, was such a natural competition to be rivalry that that made sense. And Pittsburgh was Cleveland's big rival in the NFL, and they said, okay, we'll go along too. And each one of those teams got $3 million, which in today's terms – is maybe between 15 and $20 million. It's not that much, but it was Mm -hmm. was a lot of money in those days. And so it was a nice incentive and inducement uh, to get those teams to make the move. And that's why we have a national football conference. And why we have an American football conference, right? The the other thing that happened was they, uh, at the behest of the AFL, they agreed the NFL did to accept all of the AFL records Um, So, for instance, if you look in the the record book, for the longest punt in NFL history, it it goes to the Jets, whose punter in 1969, this is the regular season after the Jets won the Super Bowl, when they were still in the American Football League, is credited with a a 98-yard punt, from his own one to the Denver one. Uh, And also there's another thing. It's a real interesting record. I think it was Buffalo did not send surrender a rushing touchdown for like 14 games in a row. And this happened in the early stages of the AFL, but it's now an NFL record. That's another thing that came about, but the biggest thing that happened is Monday night football. Yeah. There was no Monday night football before. 1970 and they put the jets in monday night football for the first against game the browns the game, against the browns and P. Roosevelt had been trying to get the major networks to do a monday night football game for five years and the funny story supposedly is he went to the president of cbs bill paley and said we'd like you to have monday night football on cbs and bill paley said let me get this straight. You want me to take the Lucy show off Monday night and put on a professional football game? And Lucille Ball was a big, big star. Absolutely. CBS said, no, forget about it. After the AFO uh, finally won a, a Super Bowl, ABC, which was on the outside looking in, because uh, NBC and CBS had renewed their contracts, said, what, what can we get? And they said, we'll give you Monday night football. ABC accepted. it.
0: Yeah. And Sports, television, entertainment wasn't the same. Um, broadcasting, you know, we gave us the, you know, people know Don Meredith, who was a good quarterback for the Cowboys, uh, know him way more for what he did on Monday Night Football and really helped launch Howard Cosell into uh, iconic status as well. And I remember the story Art Modell said, you know, a lot of the owners were kind of nervous about it. He said, I'll do it. He said, just give me name it from the Jets and I'll, I'll do it. So it smart by Art Modell.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and by the way, a lot of money changed hands. The networks paid more for football broadcasts, radio and television. And the players made more money. The owners made more money. It really started a spiral uh, that continues, you know, up until now uh, of salaries and such. Uh, Cause in the sixties, you know, a, a really good professional football player made about 25 or $30,000 a year.
0: Yeah. Still had to work – a lot of them still work second jobs.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: This could be a, a tough one to ask. When you think about the AFL, who are those players? They could be not in the Hall of Fame or in the Hall of Fame, but when you look at, like, the story of the NFL, of football, not the NFL, but football, they don't get enough credit. They don't get talked about. Players – or or it could be coaches too, if you want to say. But, like, they're they're really overlooked.
1: You know, there's very few guys who played their whole careers in the AFL who are in the Hall of Fame. And, and that's really that's really sad. There are some great players in the AFL. Well, we talked about Otis Taylor before, although yeah. he played in the NFL too. Um, but, you know, Billy Shaw Buffalo was the first and only player who had played his career all, all in the AFL. Uh, who was elected into the Hall of Fame. and there weren't too many other guys, but I mean you have Gino Capoletti, who played for boston and Capoletti was he was a very good wide receiver, one of the best in the league and he was maybe the best kicker um, yeah league his his in fact his proficiency was was really rather remarkable and like everybody else back then he was a straightaway kicker. um boy, I'd have to really think about it, but you know there were there were players that, that the AFL had. Uh, like Cookie Gilchrist. Yes. Cookie Gilchrist was a, a Jim Brown-sized fullback for Buffalo who didn't quite have it all going on between his, his ears. And he was a bit of a troublemaker, but, man, he could run the football and it was almost impossible to stop him. And when he got into the open field, nobody was going to bring him down. He he just was just an amazing football player. Uh, I think Nick Bonacani is in the Hall of Fame. If he's Mm -hmm. not, he should be. He is. He was a a terrific linebacker on a horrible team in Boston. He didn't really get the recognition he deserved until he went to Miami and was on the no-name defense.
0: Right.
1: Um, I mentioned, we already talked about Kansas City. Kansas City was loaded on the offensive line and on the entire defense. You could put You can make a case you can put almost every player off on that defense in their Super Bowl year into the Hall of Fame. I mean, they're just just outstanding. Um, You know, Darryl LaMonica, I don't know if LaMonica belongs in the Hall of Fame or not. Is Blanda in the Hall of Fame? Because he should be.
0: Yeah, Blanda's in the Hall of Fame. Um, I I thought it was awesome that uh, Bill Nunn, the longtime Steeler scout who really, you know, was a black scout who brought a lot of HBCUs and really helped build that dynasty. Uh, He, he got in, but I'm not sure of Lloyd Wells for the chiefs who did the same in the AFL. I don't know if he's in the hall of fame. I think he should be.
1: Well, the AFL was such a pass happy league that, you know, it's, you could make an argument that all he did was throw the football. Uh, You know, George Sauer jr. On the jets, He was well on his way to the Hall of Fame, Uh, but he quit early. He got disgusted with with professional football. He didn't like (laughs) the regimentation, um, and he didn't like the discipline that he had to really abide by, even though he was a very disciplined guy. Uh, Weeb Eubank called him a fast Ray Berry, and Raymond Berry was the the best uh, receiver in football history, you know, until the 60s came along.
2: Um, yeah.
1: So Sauer was, a, you know, just a terrific player. Um, Larry Grantham should be in the Hall of Fame. He may not have been the best linebacker of all time, but he was among the very best. And the guy played at 198 pounds and six foot tall. And they tried to run over him for mm-hmm. 15 years in pro football, and nobody could ever really do it, at least not – not on any continuing basis. Um, So, uh, I mean, I'd have to go look at Tom Sestak on Buffalo. Um, Yeah. You know, a a terrific, a terrific player. And I, Um,
0: I say even guys who, because to me, someone, I love Bill Walsh and I definitely see what he's done in the league today. You see the imprint of what he did with the West Coast offense, you know, starting in Cincinnati and then going to San Francisco. But, how innovative Sid Gilman was as an offensive mind. I think
1: Gil- Gil- Gilman is in the Hall of Fame, I think.
0: Right, but he doesn't, in my opinion, get enough credit for transforming offensive football and being a genius, in my opinion.
1: I'll tell you what, you look at the coaching staff in San Diego in 1960.
0: Oh, with Al Davis and so many Chuck, of those
1: guys. Chuck Knoll. Chuck Knoll. Chuck <laughs> Al Davis. Uh, and a couple of other guys. I mean, they, they really had it going for them. The The AFL really was a league that was came at the right time because there were a lot of terrific football players who had really not been given, you know, the opportunity in the NFL the way they should have been.
0: Now, what do you think can or needs to be done more to give credit to a lot of these great players in the AFL. Cause I feel like there's, there's nice little tributes with the AFL patch and all, but I, I still feel like there's so many great, you know, I think of like rich tombstone Jackson and, and just great figures. and oh, great I, players. I,
1: I talked to him for the book because I asked him about playing against Winston and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, and he's really hurt that he hasn't been elected to the hall of fame and boy, he tormented the jets. He just, Oh my God, he he hit Namath so many times it was scary. Um,
0: well, when they say real quick, when they you hear the the a lot of people talk about who were the toughest guys ever, like if there's like a you know to kind of connect back to wrestling, a uh, 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 NFL tough man battle royal, who would be in there and who would win? And a lot of people don't realize Rich Tombstone Jackson, one of the toughest guys. I mean, to make Lyle Alzado fear you. I, you gotta be tough. And, and everyone talks about just how. Well, tough another, are you? another the guy
1: text. was Dave Costa on Denver. Yeah. It was a fearsome defensive tackle. In fact, he hit Namath the year after the Super Bowl game and knocked him out of the game. And he helped Joe get up. And he said, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you, and <laughs> but he just, he was, he was tough. He was really a, a hard hitter. Um, you know, one, once the, it's funny. Once the, AFL won the Super Bowl. You started to pay more attention to the defensive players around the league and yeah. you saw how good, you know, a number of them really were. So,
0: absolutely. I'll be, um, we talked a little bit yesterday, but I, it fascinates me. Anyone, you know, my, my dad is, he'll be 68 in November. And so we, you know, love. he's a four for four guy, all four sports. So, you know, I love talking to him about, you know, certain eras and and great times. And I mentioned earlier that to me, I mean, maybe other people might want to argue, but that's such a great time that late sixties, early seventies. And with this week, with the passing of, of Tom, terrific Tom Seaver, and just what he meant, you being a Met fan and what he meant to you as a, and, you know, turning that being really the cog, you know, him and Gil Hodges to turn that franchise around and get to that miracle 69 season.
1: I was going to write my second book, my next book, about the Mets. Um, and I knew in order to do it justice, I'd have to find get, start with Seaver. And I wasn't going to make him the focus of the book. I was actually going to make the book about Gil. Uh, and so I called Seaver about three years ago, and, and he answered the phone. And it was like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, and it's not that I wasn't a was a big Sieber fan, I was, but I love that whole team too and i I can't really single out somebody on that team that I was the biggest fan of. Like I can with the Jets Emerson boozer and, and Jerry Philbin were my favorites. but you know, he talked with me and he told me that if I was going to write a book about Gil, he wanted to put his two cents in. Um, but you're right about the sixties it was a it was a different kind of era. You know, there it, it, it was so much turmoil uh, that went on, so much, you know, racism, so much, you know, um, uh, black, as they called them in those days, African-Americans finally standing up and demanding their rights and such. And it had a huge influence uh, on sports in many different ways. Um, and so all the turmoil that went on um, and the existence of the AFL you know, and surviving, because there have been obviously other football leagues that didn't make it. And the American Basketball Association, which I think very few people today even remember, but that they they kind of put it together in the mid 60s. uh, And, and, you know, they they created something that that also had legs, although they didn't let all those teams in. Uh, They, you know, they let in some of the teams. And uh, hockey's not as as big in the states, you know. But they started the World Hockey Association, you know, yeah. in the late '60s. So um, the only thing that didn't work was 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 in baseball. They had a Continental Baseball League that yeah got got put to sleep because they they let the Mets and the Houston Astros have franchises. So uh,
0: you know what's what's uh, what's interesting to me is when I look at those three teams of the the Jets. The, the 69 Mets and those early seventies Knicks, those teams have really stood the test of time and they're iconic in, in sports. But I really will say, I look at it, all three of those, well, you know, in baseball, it's a manager, but all three of, for those teams, those coaches I feel are really overlooked. And like Red Holzman to me is someone who's very overlooked on, on the impact he has today. Even,
1: um, I was so struck as all New Yorkers were in those days by Red's philosophy about distributing the ball to everybody and movement, not standing around and isolating and go one-on-one. You know, I was a fan of the Knicks. I went to see the Nets with Julius Irving, and I got so into basketball that a couple of times I went to some of the local summer league games and I was really put off because it was all isolation and dribble, 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 And that's what I see when I watch the NBA these days. And I, I don't know if you agree or not, probably not, but I get turned um, off. I, I, I turn it off because I'm, I'm not interested in one guy going against four. Uh, and, the other, and, the other, and the other guys all standing around watching them.
0: There's, there's too much of that. I think when you watch some of the better teams – you won't see that, but there's – you know, it, it stinks that I feel like it's good expansion, you know, with these leagues equal to more jobs, which is awesome, but then I think you get lesser talent with it. And I feel like it bothers me with the NBA that – do I want it to be, you know, the the, the bad boy Pistons again? And do I love those teams? Or the 90s Knicks with Riley's Knicks and that physical? But I think what bothers me is – uh, I'll see these guys who are very isolation players, and what I saw was growing up like that was going to hurt you because guys are going to play defense and then they'll focus on you and you're going to get touched and you're going to get hit. But now the league's so open, I'll see guys go to the to the to the hole, and there's there's no contact until they get there. Like, and that's that kind of brings well, you
1: know, it. I, and I and I hate to put it on you, but I'll put it on Philadelphia because I think the team in the 76ers had with Julius and McGinnis and Allen yeah. and Chocolate Thunder is what took us to where we are today because those guys were all isolation players.
0: But I felt like Portland and Bill Walton and Dr. Jack Ramsey beating them kind of saved basketball. Is like the way it's told yeah. now. Yeah,
1: they, <laughs> you did. Know? they did. You can't. So I thought that helped. You know, we're we're getting away from the subject a hand, but but no, I, I love I, think I, I love talking point.
0: to you about all of it. I love talking to you about all of it because you have a great knowledge of it all. Um, I when I look at it a few years ago, and I guess you see like the top 100 players of all time, and Namath made number 100. Yeah, and that shocked we, me. Not,
1: yeah, not that, not that he, not that he. That he, did, that he made the top 100, but that he was 100.
0: So he should have been higher, you think?
1: I thought he was going to be higher, but it was hard for me to argue when I saw the list come out. You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't see any quarterback uh, listed better than him who wasn't better than he was. And, and that's, you know, I don't think Joe would, would trade a day of what he did back then, you know, to get any higher on the list. I mean, he enjoyed his life to the fullest. And and it wasn't a young man in New York at the time who didn't envy, you know, every every uh, opportunity that he had. I just think, you know, again, the fact that he didn't really, you know, come to play all the time, uh, really, it's a shame. You know, Jerry Philbin has said, you know, before and said in my book – he took money out of my pocket because we could have gone to the Super Bowl a couple more times.
0: I was going to ask that. I was going to ask because, you know, you look at it. I think Namath played on three winning seasons in his career, maybe four winning seasons with the Jets.
1: I think you're right because um, they were eight. They were eight, five, and one the year before the Super Bowl, and then they won twelve, and then they won eleven the year after the Super Bowl. And I don't think they won. They had another winning season under
0: now. Do you look at that as Namath, or like do you think if Namath would have been focused because they kind of drop and we look at by the time the early 70s hit, the Jets are pretty plummeted and they're not a good team. Do you think that like the wheels are going to fall off anyway, or that they could have competed and maybe won another Super Bowl?
1: Oh, well, they they easily could have gone to the Super Bowl uh, in the year that Kansas City did. Um, they were devastated by injuries in the secondary that year mm-hmm. by the, by the ninth or 10th game in the season, they were playing four linebackers and three defensive backs because they didn't have any defensive backs left who could run. They, they all, they all were hurt all of it. Randy Beverly who had two interceptions in the Super Bowl, was hurt on and off the entire year. Um, Jim Hudson, who was uh, one of the all-stars at at uh, strong safety um, he got hurt early in the season. Uh, hurt one leg when one of his players ran into him and set out for three games, came back, and one of his other players ran into him and damaged the other leg, and that was it. And I don't know if if Hudson ever played another game in the NFL. Um, So that team, if they'd been healthy, and Maynard was hurt, Maynard didn't even play except for a a couple of uh, plays or two or three against Kansas City in the division a playoff game that the Jets lost uh, 13 to six. Um, and, and, and a couple of the offensive linemen were hurt too and didn't play. So um, that team could have gone again. Uh, and uh, 68, when they went eight, eight, five and one, they finished a half a game out of the Eastern division. I don't think they were ready to play in the Super Bowl, but I also look at Namath. When I look at quarterbacks today, uh, you know, when, when you look at uh, our friend number 12 in, in New England now in Tampa, uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and, and you look at how he was able in New England all those years to, to, to make them rise above with a revolving door of players, offensive yeah. line. And I mean, he just was remarkable in how he was able to make the offense go, especially when it needed to. And Namath had all the ability of Brady, but Namath didn't have the discipline. And as you mentioned before, he and like the other AFL quarterbacks, but it was really exemplified by Namath, they didn't show throw short passes. Now, the kind of passes you saw in the Super Bowl game, you know, the quick hitters to, to Snell and to Mathis and, and some of those guys, that didn't happen during the season. No, no. He was throwing
0: – He had five interceptions in the one game that year. Oh, twice. Yeah.
1: Twice. And uh, he, uh, one of the Buffalo Bills defensive backs, um, Booker Edgerson, told me that Namath was amazing because most, most of the time when you show a simple down and out, you know, in pro football, it's 10, 15 yards. Namath threw 25 yard down and outs. And when, when the, the receiver turned around, the ball was right there, right in his chest. And Namath had backpedaled. He 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 went back deeper in the pocket than anybody. So his twenty five yard down and out was like a forty or forty five yard pass.
0: Yeah. He he Oops. what I always hear and you know, you, you I've read biographies on Namath, uh, HBO had the the two the big documentary on him, but you always hear about how the natural natural abilities In history of football at the quarterback position, it's hard to find higher. I think
1: Marino Marino is the only guy that I've seen who had that kind of overall skill, and he was way bigger than Namath was.
0: Yeah, way bigger. Yeah. So it's it's it's,
1: Namath's arm, his ability to get set up in the pocket, uh, and and to release the ball quickly was out of this world. Eubank talked about he compared him to. Unitas and he compared him to Otto Graham, and he said that, that Graham and Unitas would back would backpedal, and go about seven or eight yards deep, and then they would take a step forward. And Namath would side, I, I like call it side saddle, back into the pocket, and before he was even set, he'd let the ball go, with, with an uncanny accuracy. Yeah, uh, he said he out of the three. You know, nobody could compare to the arm uh, and the ability to get rid of the football quickly the way Namath could.
0: Incredible. He's uh, he, he's he's an interesting figure, and and I definitely understand his importance to the game. You know, you can't take that away. But I always I like to separate those things at times, and sometimes it's interesting just to see like. Where do people see him as far as what he did on the field and how he played and, you know.
1: A little bit – I think maybe an apt comparison for a running back would be Gale Sayers, who just was an incredible, elusive runner and and just impossible to bring down. But he had a very short career because he had two devastating injuries. And the first one he came back from – And he was a shadow of his former self, and and still he was one of the best running backs in the league. But after the second one, you know, he really couldn't do it. In fact, I think he had the shortest career of anyone who's been elected to the Hall of Fame.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Terrell Davis is close now. I think Terrell Davis just got in (laughs) uh, because Sayers played either six or seven years. Davis played seven. But, you know, for me, Gale Sayers was a transcendent player. And was, he was dominant. I mean, the six touchdowns in one game against San Fran. Uh, Joe played way longer than probably people thought he was going to play with those bad knees, but uh, just was disappointing, you know, I see a lot of times. And I think it's, it's it's odd, but kind of funny that, you know, you, you always hear, you you know, how hard it is to win a championship. But I feel like when teams only win one, I don't know if that's selfish on fan base but, like, whether it's the, those Jets teams or you look at the 86 Mets, the 85 Bears, there's a lot of, like, how come you didn't win more?
1: And know you Bears know, living in Chicago, as I do, the 85 Bears, you hear it all the time. They should have won more than once. And they should have. But, you know, sometimes it's not in the cards. The next year, McMahon, the quarterback was hurt. And I went to a game at, at Soldier Field with a friend, and Doug Flutie was quarterbacking. And that's quite a drop-off. Uh, think between, so yeah oh yeah, yeah i think so i think so
0: <laughs> is that is that the reason why they didn't because you look at it after yeah. that there there's some great teams in the 80s the, Their defense know, the giant... wasn't
1: derby the defense wasn't as dominant as it had been you know there's almost nothing in any sport that you can fool everybody with all the time and, and buddy had a lot of Offenses fooled that couldn't figure out what he was doing in 85. And by 86, it was pretty clear they'd figured out at least some of the stuff he was doing. Because, you know, I remember watching in 85 in awe. Uh, I'd been here only a couple of years. And you, could, you couldn't tell from play to play who was coming next on the blitz. Mm-hmm. And he had 11 guys and, and any, any of the linebackers, any of the, of, of the defensive backs, could be coming. And sometimes he sent he sent them in from different angles from different, you know, sides of the field. <clears throat> so but the next year they, they had him somewhat figured out, but the problem was they couldn't score. Flutie was serviceable, but he was not the kind of guy that wasn't going to not make mistakes. He wasn't there to do that. So even though he had Peyton and and some other weapons like Willie Galt, eh, it just wasn't the same team. So
0: let me ask you, I, I didn't know how that you were in you know, I knew you were in the Midwest. I didn't know you were out there at that time. But a guy who I know as a Hall of Fame player, he, he gets it, you know, first tight end in the Hall of Fame. But as a coach, what's your opinion on Mike Dicka as a coach? Uh,
1: I think a lot of bluster.
0: Okay, good. I, I'm the same way.
1: I, I, I mean, <laughs> he, he's got a reputation and they love him here. Duck coach. But, um, you know, I, I don't think – when it comes to X's and O's or or motivating players, I don't think there was really much there. I mean, the defensive players loved Buddy. Yeah, uh, and, and there was a great deal of uh, frustration, anger between the offense and the defense as far as who they threw their support behind. Mm-hmm. I mean, the defense carried Buddy off the field after yeah. the Super Bowl, and, and the offense. It's... And the I don't know if Ditka got. Got carried off the field or not? Because I did. remember Buddy, but I don't. I don't remember Dicca.
0: They had both. Yeah. But they they wanted Buddy, but then I you know in the thirty for thirty that came out a few years ago on the eighty five Bears, Dan Hampton said he told Mongo to you know go get Dicca so he wouldn't get his feelings hurt.
1: It says a lot that you have to have somebody say that to you.
0: Oh yeah, I I love that thirty for thirty because. It focused on Buddy. You know, and it was right before he had passed. And to me, he is the guy of that team. Um, and it's not, Dicka's a, I, I think he's important that he did bring some discipline, I guess, but into that. But like, Dicka to me is an And he saw what he did in New Orleans and trading the whole draft for Ricky Williams, but he just, to me, did not know what he was doing. And he, you know, I think the, saddest part is because after 85 buddy comes to philly and he couldn't hold that team together and he kind of was more divisive because he made it about himself and became a a spokesman for all these things and and you know a lot of players resented that so
1: i was going to ask you why didn't it work in philadelphia since obviously for, for buddy yeah
0: or oh for for so we did a show about it a few months ago, so anyone listening, check the archives on Buddy Ryan's Eagles. I think that Buddy focused – the misconception is that Buddy didn't care about offense. That's not true. What Buddy did not care about, which hurt them, was offensive line play. Hmm. Buddy drafted well and cared about skill positions. Buddy did not get offensive line play, and Buddy also did not get – he should have had – not saying necessarily someone like him, but a strong offensive coordinator. And I think he didn't want that threat. So he never had that offensive coordinator to develop Randall and develop an offense. And that really hurt him, honestly. And then, you know, him talking about Norman Brayman doesn't help. But I think if the misconception is that there's no, there was all, you know, Keith Jackson, Chris Carter was here, you know, Randall was here before him, but he had Randall. He, he brought in talent on the skill positions, but all Randall for a long time had the record for being sacked the most. You know, as elusive as he was, he never cared about offensive line play, never did.
1: It's really funny. I read today of all things, the Jets have the guy who's been the center in Denver for the last three years. And uh, he was a free agent. And John Elway <laughs> told him, I don't put my money in centers. So get the best offer you can and go. A quarterback, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, who said he doesn't really believe that center is that important a position on the offensive line.
0: It's fascinating um, because there's a guy who, you know, is a historian. I don't know if he's a Chicago, Jack Silverstein. um, I want to get him on the podcast. We talk a lot. Younger guy like myself and Jose, but um, I listened to actually an interview he did not too long ago, a podcast and talking about bears who should be in the hall of fame. And then it went deeper into like, you know, the center position and how centers are really gravely overlooked for hall of fame and just for recognition, which is very bizarre to me that outside, I think offensive line play. I love offensive line. I played it for a little bit and I think it's fascinating and great. And I get why tackles get the recognition, but Um, So I think all of it's important, but I'm surprised that guards have now gotten more recognition than centers.
1: Yeah, guards, uh, and now they're they're really very specialized too because they're looking for for guys that uh, can do certain skills and have certain size and particularly height Mm -hmm. um, in in guards. Uh, I, you know, I've always been fascinated by offensive line play. And and so I learned a lot talking to the Jets players about it because uh, they read, which teams do today. They read the defense, and and you know made made calls amongst themselves back then. And not every other team did that. Uh, and that was part of of Eubanks' genius. He had the linemen, the offensive linemen. He had the wide receivers reading the defenses too, and Namath and the running backs, and they were all communicating. You know, without without words right with each other as they came to the line of scrimmage. So um, you know it's yeah. Pete Lamons who's a tight end on that team told me he went to Green Bay mm-hmm. when the coach and he was shocked that they didn't read defenses.
0: Yeah. I I I the more I I, I love studying coaches and GMs and scouting, which I think was to you know to connect it was really the, a big key for the 85 bears was the bill Tobin, you know, and all that scouting to bring, to build that team. And I think what buddy did not learn was that one of the more overlooked offensive lines to me was that era in Chicago in the eighties around with Jimbo covert and, you know, Tom Thayer was there and Jay Hillenberg. That's a really good Keith Van Horn. Then I kind of find it funny, buddy, Overlooked that part He had a really good Offensive line
1: With the well, Bears And and he had Three great Talented athlete, Highly athletic Linebackers Which yeah. Maybe only The Kansas City Chiefs Ever had You know Could compete Athletically you know, Well with the three That's interesting
0: the, the Chiefs Have a great one um, The Steelers When you look at that Lambert Ham Andy Russell Was a little older At that point
1: and I don't think Ham was a great athletic linebacker. Uh, oh, see,
0: I thought Jack. I think Jack Ham was so. I think he's maybe mm-hmm. one of the more overlooked players ever. Jack okay. Ham was phenomenal. That's interesting. Yeah,
1: yeah. But you look at the three guys who played for the Bears that year, and I mean Wilbur, Wilbur Marshall. I mean, one—he's a, a specimen, and Singletary. You know, is, is just you know. The, the eyes alone, <laughs> yeah, you know, w- would get him into the hall of fame. So, anyway,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. that's just I think the Chiefs is up there with Lanier and Bobby Bell and Jim Lynch. And you had the Giants in the 80s with Carson Taylor Banks, yeah. And then you had the uh, I had Jeff Perlman, we had Jeff Perlman on the show and talking about those early 90s, late 80s Saints with Sam Mills and. Ricky Jackson and Vaughn Johnson and Pat Swilling. That's always fun to talk about those great linebackers, of course. He'll
1: talk about the WFL until your <laughs> until your ears fall off.
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But I I think we really, you know, put a bow on it. I I, I think it's awesome that, you know, you wrote this book because those are the things, the reasons why I love the podcast. Like doing the pot and talking to you know writers like yourself is those stories about the guys who, you know, we put athletes right or wrong on a pedestal a lot of times. And those stories that you 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 tell so well in this book, and even as you told me in the podcast that maybe they might have some physical gifts that we don't have, and you know that's God given, but the The feelings the maybe the adversity is it, more close and similar than we a lot of times like to think and the you know, and i I love those stories about that and some fighting on how to work together you know it is something, and I think a lot of the teams we've talked about it's a lot of work, a lot of ego, especially you know the bigger sport like football with a lot of players to come together for the common goal and to get the, the win I
1: think it was and, easy I think it was easier back then. From what I was told, because the rosters were smaller, and the players were the less coaches too. The Jets had, and, and this was typical. They had four assistant coaches and a head coach. Yeah, and so you had camaraderie not only among the players but among the coaches, uh, and um, you know, and less specialization. Right. You know, you didn't have third down backs so much. You didn't have, you know, uh, you know. If, two tight ends because nobody had that kind of talent and you didn't have a tight end. who was more of a blocker than he was, you know, a receiver. So
0: no, different,
1: and I, different kind of game.
0: Yeah. But you still, you still see the ego as with Namath, as with other, you know, and it's hard to get that, to put that together to, to win and win consistently. And as no disrespect to, to Joe Namath this is not a show to knock Joe Namath but he did not do this alone. And there's a lot of pieces that went before behind the scenes and a lot of pieces that were on the field that don't get enough recognition. And I'm, you were the first person I thought of once I heard, you know, Winston Hill was getting into the hall of fame because we talked at length about just how much of a travesty it was that he wasn't in there. And I'm sorry that he, he passed away in 2016 I'm sorry that he's not here to to see it. I know his family is, but I'm glad he is at least getting that recognition that you know, he wrongly yeah. so deserves.
1: Amen to that uh, you know. it's uh, you know bitters bittersweet, but it you know uh, it, hopefully he'll he's in somewhere where he'll be able to see it and yeah, knowing how humble he was, he probably won't make a lot of it, but it's, <laughs> his kids. His kids and his grandkids, you know, love the fact that it's going to finally happen. And uh, if so many of his, you know, teammates weren't so elderly and so, you know, not really in good physical shape, a lot of them would probably show up, you know, Mm -hmm. for his induction. So we'll see.
0: Well, you know what? I actually, I'll, I'll end it with this. Just kind of a fun question, but, and you can name a few. But if there was no restrictions, there's no anyone dead, alive, whatever, just what, you know, you wrote this book. If you could write, it could be about a, a, a coach or a player, certain teams. Who are some, some you know, thing, people that you think about that you, if you could write the book that you want to write with no restrictions, who are some either, like I said, coaches, it could be a player, teams, whatever, who you would love to just write about?
1: Um, in no necessity, not necessarily in order, Lombardi. Um, I guess I would, I would love to, to have talked seriously with Casey Stengel.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Um, and Babe Ruth. Hmm. I was born in 1952, and I'm a historical guy like you are. And as I got older, I realized. Geez, I was born four years after Babe Ruth died. Only four years, and I was born seven years after FDR died. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, musically, I became a big fan of Al Jolson. Yeah, Al Jolson died the year before I was born. And so historically, you know, I've always found that fascinating. And uh, now I don't know if the guys I just mentioned would have ever been really serious in talking to me. Um, I mean, I, I would have loved to talk to Weeb for the book because I think it would have been really a fascinating conversation, um, about his philosophy. I don't know a lot about his philosophy. I know what a great coach he was. Yeah. And how, and how, uh, he had coaching ability, you know, not only with quarterbacks, which he was renowned for, but he was a great kicking coach. And, uh, he was, a, he was a great offensive line coach. He was Winston Hill's first offensive line coach with the Jets. Yeah. And, and he could coach, also coach the defensive line. Um, and he liked to dabble on defense, although, funny line in the book, after he left a, a Jet defensive team meeting, uh, he closed the door, and Walt Michaels said, everybody here forget about everything that we've just said.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, but he loved to dabble in it and, and yet he wasn't you know onerous about it um, and, and he was he had an eye he had an eye for coaching I, I really learned more than anything else that you take very good talented college players and you coach them up mm. and today it's, it's very apparent as well um, but you just didn't see in those days guys who immediately stepped in and became great players. Uh, in fact, in those years, and I think you're aware of this, quarterbacks were expected to stand on the sideline for about five years with the board, mm-hmm. watching some veteran guy show them how to do it. Right. Namath was one of the first who didn't do that. Right. No, I, that's a, interesting. He won a Super Bowl by his fourth year.
0: Yeah. I guess I'm I'm surprised. It's interesting. Yes, why I'd love to ask you, because those uh, – like Lombardi – and even Stengel and, and Babe, those are pretty iconic names. Like, they're, you're not lacking information. Well, look like a,
1: look at have. their history. Look at the impacts that they had on the game. You know, yeah. my, my only real knowledge of Casey's, aside from reading about it, obviously, is that in the early 60s when the, the Mets started and they were on WABC radio in New York and Howard Cosell did the pregame and the postgame show. And the Mets were awful. And yet all that Cosell wanted to talk about was the fact that Casey kept falling asleep in the dugout.
2: <laughs>
1: and I talked to Ed Cranepool about it and Ed said, what difference did it make? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it happened, but what difference did it make? <laughs>
0: no, I, I, cause I, for me, Steve Sable would have been yeah. someone I, 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 yeah. I kind of yeah. want the, the documentary or the auto, the, the, not auto, but the biography. Even though
1: he did the Jets wrong. In in the in, after Super Bowl three,
0: he did, he did, he did. He he really he about really turned
1: it into a in, into something honoring John Unitas.
0: Pretty and, yeah. And not
1: the Jets winning the Super Bowl. To,
0: to, to give him credit, later on he did. He admitted it. He, he
1: admitted what he had done. Yeah. He said he couldn't help himself. And so you know I'll, And and actually had great a great closing line, uh, in that in that Super Bowl video or film and basically it was you know super bowl three might not have been the greatest game that was ever played uh or but it was the most memorable and it showed that when any team plays any other team you know never be certain that you know exactly how it's going to turn out right no i
0: i uh that's one of my regrets when i started doing the pod. like i started getting the podcasting it was about a year after he passed and I wish, because you know, not too far from Mount Laurel, New Jersey, where I'm at, wish I could have uh, could have talked to him. But I, I have an interesting one to me, and I felt this way before. I know the Last Dance documentary put him back in the limelight in a negative way, but and and there's that that's the big connection with Red Holzman. But Jerry Krause to me is fascinating, and not even. Mm-hmm. The, the stuff with the Bulls, but the fact that he was a scout for pro baseball and pro basketball for 12 years, you know, doing on that level at the same time is pretty impressive, and that the talented players he scouted in both sports is – uh
1: Well, you know, they, they talk about players who have great athletic ability and could have played other sports, but you don't often find someone like Kraus who could scout – multiple sports and and was, was very good at it in fact and he went he went to scout for the mets after he yeah left the Bulls.
0: yeah and he people mocked it but i understand what he says where he 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 loved it because scouting i think it, it's a grind of a job and it's lonely and a lot of travel it, he loved it and he said he, he had a god-given knack for it and i i believe him and looking at his track record i I believe that he did. And I think he, I was really upset. And the reason why I wanted to talk to Jack is because um, he's writing a book about the Bulls and talk to him about Jerry Krause because I'm not a filmmaker. And I, I but I feel like he really got wronged in the last dance and it wasn't talked about. You
1: I, know. you know, I, I, I would, I wouldn't, I don't agree with you. Why I is that? Krause was his own worst enemy. Krauss, when they won the title and he said it uh, a tribute to the organization. Well, yeah, it's a tribute to the organization, but come on, you know why you won. You didn't. You didn't go give a pep talk to the team. You didn't Absolutely. tell, you know, Phil Jackson how to coach the team. Uh, you know, M- Michael is a, you know, a once in a lifetime wonder. Um, and and just say the things that he said to try to call attention, you know, to what he did. Now, I'll give him this credit. You know, Jordan always was giving him advice about who to acquire. And he basically never listened to him.
0: Which is huge.
1: And look, but look at the Charlotte Hornets. Where exactly. Jordan, where Jordan can, can bring anybody in, and he wants to bring in. And how many titles have they won?
0: I don't think that Jerry Krause was not his own words. I don't disagree with that statement. I think he gets a bad rap on the fact that I think he was a lonely guy. And I think because he knows how it, he knew how it felt to be overlooked, to be an outcast. He did it in a bad way, like the wrong timing. (laughs) But I think what I like about him is he would give credit to people. He give credit to from the equipment manager to the second out are they as important as the players and coaches no sorry but they're not when it comes to winning a championship but he talked about Al Vermeil being a great you know strength and conditioning coach who's Dick Vermeil's brother he talked about they had the best salary you know capologist like I felt like I liked that he didn't forget his guys but he could have he took things to heart too much but the fact is what I say about what hurts LeBron and why LeBron will never be Jordan is the fact that I think LeBron could have been. If LeBron stayed with a Pat Riley, who Pat Riley runs things his way, and not gonna, he, no star is going to tell Pat Riley what to do, LeBron would have, could have maybe done that. But the fact that before and then after LeBron runs the team, you see that. And Michael Jordan doesn't have the success he has if he had a yes man in that position the fact that Krauss did not listen to MJ and made those decisions is to me why that dynasty was a, the dynasty it became.
1: So I, I looked through it. So I, I know, you know, and I read everything in those days and, uh, and I watched the the documentary. And aside from it being really confusing because they kept jumping all over, you know, time periods. Um, I thought it captured, you know, what I remember most vividly about those Bulls teams, I, I mean, I I feel privileged to have watched uh, Julius and Jordan, and LeBron, and because um, those are three guys. But I'll tell you, and and, and, and hey, this will be an argument for another day. Mm-hmm. I'll put I'll put Bill Russell's Celtics against any of those teams, and Bill, mm. Ru- you watch Bill Russell, and how he dominated on defense and i don't mean playing the guy opposite him
0: i'm mm-hmm. playing
1: you talk about guys who go one against five on offense he went one against five on defense absolutely like the middle and he block, he blocked shots 12 feet away from the basket bill, fact, bill
0: russell's a top three player in my opinion. in
1: fact i i i don't know if it's ever going to happen but the jet the, the knicks have a backup center i think his last name is mitchell uh, he was, he was their second round draft pick two years ago. And uh, I have just watched him a couple of games and man, he has got Bill Russell like shot blocking ability mm. uh, and he can shoot a little bit, but he's like, but Bill Russell didn't take 20 foot jump shots. You know, he, he, he took little, little baby hooks and, and in, in close, uh, you know, oh, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it was a different era, but but the Celtics were just so much better than anybody else, just like Jordan's Bulls were, uh, and so it's uh, fascinating to watch that. It really, I is. guess,
0: it, if you mean they are the greatest dynasty, eleven out of thirteen. But if I'm looking at a single season, it's hard for me to overlook the '86 Celtics. Um, that that's that's '87 Lakers were great too. Uh, the 83 Sixers, but that 86 Celtics is really tough to, for a well, single think, season. I think, if you look
1: at it, I think it was the 67 or 66 76ers. The
0: 67 Sixers, yeah. With, with, Wilt,
1: with Wilt and Chet Walker and Cunningham.
0: And, yeah, Luke Jackson.
1: And Luke Jackson and Greer. Al Greer. And, uh, I mean, I used to listen to the games with Andy Musser calling him, you know, from New York. Oh, wow. And, okay. Yeah, yeah. it's And what was it? the color man? Was Sonny? And he still still runs the the league down there. Sunny Hill. Sunny Hill.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sunny Hill. We still hear him so every Sunday morning. He's on the radio, um, and I'm glad you you know dropped Andy. Great, great Andy Musser today. Great, great Phillies yeah, broadcaster. He, an broad.
1: he was a very good answer. Yeah.
0: But the '67 Sixers are a great team too. I, I mean Russell. I, I look at it. If my top five, it, it, it's a Jordan. Kareem, and then I, I, I go Russell. And I, I struggle to put LeBron there, but LeBron might be like the fifth spot. I, It's tough with that, though.
1: What I loved about the, the 76ers back then, and I loved the Lakers in, in some succeeding years, is that it was the first and only time that Wilt had supporting cast – that could rival what what Russell had in Boston, uh, because when, when the teams, the players that Russell had around him, compared to what Wilt had, when it was basically just him and Greer, you know, for the longest time, uh, and, and even you know, it, it, it was just a shame. But when you know Wilt had that 76ers team, and then he went to the West Coast and and had played with uh, Jerry West and with with Baylor, even though he was on yeah. his like last legs and Happy Harrison and Goodrich, whatever. I mean, then he then he really had a supporting cast.
0: That um, yeah, that that we we gotta do another show because that is one of the big debates I have. And I'm a Philadelphia guy, so there's plenty of men who are of your age, including my father, my uncle, who want to strangle me. But I will I will say, one of the big misnomers I feel about Wilt Chamberlain's career is that he did not have a supporting cast that could rival Russell. I feel for a lot of the years he had a supporting cast that was close enough that if you're a transcendent player like Wilt Chamberlain, you could have taken them over the edge, and he did not. And I look at even in 68 and 69 with the uh, Lakers, but 68 with the Sixers blowing a 3-1 lead to Russell, that Russell team was not that great. 69, those Lakers really should have dominated Russell's squad. At Russell's last title, they didn't. And then one one of Wilt's biggest choke jobs, to me, was to your, your great Knicks. The fact that Wilt did not dominate with Willis Reed hobbled and take it to him and was pretty much in all of Willis. Uh, I, 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 was, I, was
1: gl- I was glad because I don't think it was Wilt so much. I think Bill Sharman should have told – Jerry West, uh, and Goodrich, feed it to Wilt, and Wilt go to the bucket. And he didn't. I, I don't think. I don't think that's Wilt's fault. I think that's that's coaching. And Sherman was a terrific coach. Uh,
0: I I look at Wilt, and the fact that he, if you're a transit, what the fact that he was so aloof, and that's was a diff. When it comes to talent, Wilt is way more talented than Russell. Why I will always put Russell over Wilt. Is because of that drive. It's a team game, and the, that focus, that drive, and that desire to make his other teammates better. Bill had that, and, and Wilt didn't. And and Wilt would he would be aloof.
1: And in- I saw I saw uh, Russell. It was a pretty old interview, but I watched it for the first time about a month ago. And they talked to him about. Did you ever talk to Michael? He said, Oh yeah, I did. I did what was that conversation like? And Michael said, you know, we could have won more championships. And Russell said, could you have won 11? (laughs) Like I did. And Michael just looked at him and, uh, and, and uh, Russell said to him, you know, those two guys that hit the winning shots to win two of those championships for you, Kerr and. uh, Paxson. And Paxson. Said yeah. He said, uh, couldn't have happened in the sixties. And Jordan said, What are you talking about? Why couldn't it have happened in the sixties? He said, because we only had 10 teams and those guys would have been sitting up in the stance. <laughs> they were they weren't good enough to have played. Yeah. in the 60s. I mean, I, I don't I don't agree with him, but you know, but he but he he really put the he put the salt in the wound.
0: Yeah, I don't agree with that either. But that's an interesting point. That's an interesting point. Um, no, I, I it's 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 fascinating. It, it, as I think we you know we definitely have a lot of topics for for future episodes because uh, you you like myself and and Jose. You, it's not just not just football. It's all sports. You have that love of history and uh, you know.
1: Well, you love you know you love uh, yesterday morning, my my son sent me video of Siever. and then he made a mistake. He called me like five minutes later and I was weeping mm-hmm. and it wasn't weeping because Siever died. I was weeping because it was my youth. It was, you know, 52 years ago. Uh, I had the same reaction when Mickey Mantle died, even though I was a Mets fan, everybody in New York was a Mickey Mantle. fan.
0: Well, um, and that's something that doesn't go away because I re I remember when Mickey Mantle died and the effect that that had. And I, he, I was obviously never watched Mickey Mantle play, but when you saw the Keith Oberman, Dan Patrick, Bob Costas, talk about it yeah, that was their youth, but it no different than when Kobe passed away this in January.
1: Well, um, it, Cause Kobe was so young, but oh. also
0: he had that same effect on that generation, you know, like, he's so many kids that their Michael Jordan was Kobe Bryant. And obviously, yes, his young, his, you know, how tragic and sudden it was plays a part, but he has that kind of impact. You know, I felt that way. John Thompson this past week, you know, we did an episode and what his importance and what he meant and what he signified and don't get as great of a coach as he was, but as a black coach and in that world and what he represented and the fact that, I told my mom, as much as my dad and my older brother and my grandfather are sports, training, my mom likes sports. And I told her, I said, Well, I think of John Thompson, I think of you because from the day I can remember, you talked about how important he is and what he did and what he did in those players' lives. And that, yes, you have to win to keep your job, but you saw and you felt, and the proofs in the pudding, he cared about who they were as men, not just basketball players. And that always stuck out with me. And the fact that he knew what he represented and he knew what those teams represented and he, that's a lot of pressure and the fact that he didn't waver on it. And I felt the same way when John Thompson passed away, like so many teams now after that, you talk about the UNLVs and the fab five and all that. And, you know, Miami hurricane
1: starts with you know, George. And yet i know, although I will you know, be memorable. Uh, when Russell died, when Chamberlain died, we didn't have that kind of reaction. When Russell dies, we won't have that kind of reaction. When Jim Brown dies, we won't have that kind of a reaction. Um, you know, I thought there was there was more of a reaction when Peyton died. Um, you know, I think baseball is a little different, you know, and, and uh, you know, every time I see Joe Namath on his Medicare commercial, <laughs> i i which would by the way the jet players were just 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 having a a hilarious time about um you know i wonder well what's the reaction gonna be when joe dies
0: um yeah walters was big wilt was big locally i'm a philadelphia guy so i felt it was he big in
1: philadelphia when he died yeah yeah
0: and the service was here and he represents so much for that generation. How many, how many the of the children.
1: twenty thousand women showed up?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, that'd be that'd be good research, honestly. But, um,
2: <laughs> but, but I think
0: I think Jim Brown and Russell will get a big. I think, especially in today's climate, and you add in their activism, I think that will will get. It's so
1: it, it's it's so long ago and. As great as Jim Brown was, and I was fortunate enough to see him, and I think he's the greatest running back of all time when you put everything together. It, very few people really have seen him play. Uh, yeah, Russell, I you know, I turned on Russell on YouTube after that interview I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, just to just to to remind myself how good he was, how dominant he was. I would have loved to see. Him play Jordan's team because I would have loved to see him come out and challenge Michael. That would have yeah. been something.
0: I it's interesting. I think, yeah, I I don't know. Baseball does have a certain lore. I I feel, I feel Jim. I think Bill Russell definitely will get. It. I think because we still see Russell in the. He comes to the finals every year, and, and we even saw him at Kobe's memorial service. Jim Brown, we're not seeing as much.
1: No, um, no, it's, uh, no, and it's, and, you know, he picks the spots. He's a very smart guy. He's, boy, he's a really brilliant guy. Jim um, Brown or Russell, yeah, you mean? Uh, uh, Brown, Jim Brown's really, in uh, addition to being a smart athlete, a great athlete, he's a very, very intelligent guy. Uh, no. I don't know why he wasted his time going going to talk to Trump, but
0: <laughs> yeah, he's
1: a very intelligent guy.
0: <laughs> but no, it's um, yeah, they the it's interesting who has that effect on us and who uh, who leaves that legacy, you know, behind. Because you're right, Walter Payton was huge when he passed away too. Yeah,
1: it was. I mean, everybody. Uh, he just personified something that that everybody could identify with. Uh, and uh, very very few guys you know that can do that um, you know I mean I you know if Brady died tomorrow uh, you know people would celebrate his championships but he wouldn't he he doesn't nobody really knows Brady outside of what he did on the football field he's not yeah not a very public personality Jim Brown made himself a public personality you know even when he just moved to acting um you know he made it a point to still stand for causes um so he always knew where he was and what was most important to him
0: no i think it's interesting i um jim brown i think russell will definitely get that you know um because they when arnold palmer passed away a few years ago Yeah. ESPN broke news and stopped what they were doing, and, and rightfully so. About, I'm
1: talking about the average fan. Uh, I mean, I remember Arnold Palmer. I think... I've I've golfed three times in my life, and I remember Arnold Palmer, and I know mean, what kind. I remember how how major a figure he was, but I I can't. I never sat down on a Sunday afternoon to watch Arnold Palmer in no. this round of the Masters. It's just not something you know that I ever did. Um. No, I think I think
0: Russell gets it though. Jim Brown, I'm not sure. I think you could be right about. It. I think Bill Russell will get it because he's he's done he's done a lot. Even the past like within five years, yeah. yeah. Bill Simmons did that interview with him. Uh, David Faraday interviewed him. Like he he sticks around and people mention him. Um, like I said, he, he's around enough that it's going to be a big deal. And he he. Represents so much, and you still hear, you know, winning as athlete in, you know, North American sports, you know, he still has that title, and, and he's also a connector to that era, and he's one of the few, I think, once Russell, you know, Kareem's a little after, but he was around, but he was kind of younger growing up, but like, once Russell and Jim Brown pass, it's really the end of that era, those are the last two bridges, as far as those athletes, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, uh, I think that that will help them.
1: But Jeremy, thank you. thank you for inviting me today. I really appreciate it.
0: Bob, this was awesome as always. And we, uh, I want you to come back on really soon. And, and, you know, there's so many other topics to talk about that I know. And the, and
1: the name of the book is Beyond Broadway, Joe, the Super Bowl <laughs> Team that Changed Football. Any of you out there that have hung on this long, if you really want to enjoy a football book and learn about what pro football was and, and how it has evolved to where it is today uh pick it up and it's not expensive on amazon
0: no and I, I, trust me i wasn't good i was going to name it too yes beyond broadway joe it has my and i love to read sports autobiographies, sports books and this is a great one and it's going to be informative for you to see not only what these great players had to go through what they sacrificed but like as we've been talking the past couple of hours how great they were and these are players who need to be talked about more even in their own city within their own fan base. They need to get more recognition and uh, Bob's doing a good job and I, I want to help them. And I think all you listeners, we should help out in giving these players the rightful uh, recognition that they deserve because there's very few teams in football history who are more important than the 68 jets, the, the guys who are on this squad. So uh, I'm glad that you wrote this book. I know it was a labor of love, but it's detailed and it's well-written and it's just awesome. And I think you should write whatever that topic is, but you have such a great talent and whatever, you know, I'm down to help in any way and promote, but you should write another book too. I, I see it in you.
1: Well, uh, I do too. It's just got to be the same kind of labor of love. Yeah. yeah. And on that note, I will say thank you. Have yourself a great weekend.
0: You too, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, thanks.